In our first episode, we noted that Titus Andronicus has a reputation for being indecorous or indecent, somehow not worthy of the name Shakespeare. In this episode, we explore how Shakespeare did, indeed, violate some of the most established decorums and conventions of his culture with his violent Roman tragedy, but also how these violations enable the play's serious project of asking why we consume tragedies and literature at all. Russ Leo, Associate Professor in the English Department at Princeton University, guides our discussion. In terms of the reputation of this play, we have the advantage of looking at a restoration version, which is often so illuminating because you get uh, a reaction from several generations removed. During the restoration period in the 1680s, a dramatist named Edward Ravenscroft created an adaptation of Titus Andronicus, an adaptation he believed was necessary because the original was so repellent, too repellent, in fact, to have been written by Shakespeare. His address to the reader makes a point of saying... I have been told by some anciently conversant with the stage that it was not originally his. This I am apt to believe because tis the most incorrect and indigested piece in all his works. It seems rather a heap of rubbish than a structure. That's a strong statement about this play's reputation in the 17th century. We see... Um, figures for whom the name Shakespeare has to mean something lofty, they're also then questioning Shakespeare's own involvement with this play. How could he possibly have written this? To make it clear, this is a play that is performed many, many times, is in print during Shakespeare's own lifetime. This is a play that makes an impact Many readers since Ravenscroft have found the play shocking and artistically chaotic, and questioned whether Shakespeare wrote it. But the play was a tremendous success among Shakespeare's first audiences, even though they might have found it shocking for another reason. If Renaissance English culture had a single foundation stone, it was ancient Rome. According to myth, Rome was founded by Prince Aeneas of Troy, who was guided by divine destiny to Italy after the Trojan War. British chronicles told of Brutus, Britain's first king, who was a legendary descendant of Aeneas. The British saw themselves as the inheritors of the cultural treasures and political strength of the ancient world. As Jonathan Bate puts it, as England sought to establish itself as a great nation and an imperial power, it looked to the example of classical Rome. But it wasn't only political elites who had Rome as an example. It was every English schoolboy. The Renaissance humanist curriculum was based on the Latin language and Latin authors, whose texts were meant to furnish models for action. Jonathan Bate writes that young Shakespeare would have learned that the purpose of studying the classics was to be inspired by their heroic actions and moral virtues. Or, as Robert S. Miola describes, those who had been through a grammar school had been saturated in the literature of classical Rome, 
for Elizabethans, the advice and examples of ancient authors pointed the way to a better, richer and fuller life. The commonplace had it, in Bates' words, that Rome was synonymous with civilization. Shakespeare understood this central role of Rome in his culture, and that makes it all the more shocking to perceive what he does with Roman culture and literature in Titus Andronicus. There's no idealistic Rome here. There's none of the grandeur of Roman culture or practices here. In fact, the first two ways we encounter Rome as Rome are a succession crisis, which you'd think if there were functional traditions and institutions that could be resolved without violence. And then the entry of an army and a human sacrifice. There's really no idealistic Rome. This is a view of late antiquity that's so distinct from humanist visions of late antiquity. We might ask why Shakespeare takes Rome as the setting for his revenge tale. His characters are not figures from Roman history, and the story goes against the grain of Rome's significance for his society. But that in itself may be the reason. Shakespeare is challenging his audience, with its assumptions about Roman cultural greatness, to see that virtue in Rome might mean something very different from, and more unsettling than, what contemporary Europeans assumed. Why Rome? Like, why set it in this world? I think it's deliberate. When you start to think of what is the virtue that Titus or any of the Andronici, what is the virtue they display? What is it? Is it strength? Is it courage? It's might. That's what they celebrate on their entry into Rome. It's military power. It's a victory over the Goths. It's a play where I think Shakespeare invites us to rethink the meaning of virtue in a way that's not dissimilar from Machiavelli. Renaissance Italian writer Niccolo Machiavelli scandalized Europe with his work, The Prince. Conventional humanist wisdom taught that a successful prince must be a virtuous prince. Machiavelli divorced traditional morality from political success, claiming a ruler's only concern should be securing power by moral or immoral means there was actually no real difference. He uses the word virtu, but for him, it means mastery of circumstance and the use of power. This kind of vague late antique Rome is a setting where you can see the ends of institutions or fraying traditions. It's also a world where identities are pretty fluid. And the character who is able to maximize his power, is Lucius. Lucius begins the play as an opponent of the Goths and ends the play effectively as commander of the Goths. A different kind of play, you'd see him as being a traitor. He was, you know, son of Rome, and by the end of the play, he is at the head of an invading army. In a different play, that would be an act of betrayal. Not in this play. There's a fluidity in this Roman world where that's the right thing to do. 
to maximize your efficacy. So for me, Lucius is the figure who, he gets it. Like, he's the one that's able to use his name in, in a way that Titus and arguably Marcus are not. The beginning of the play is Marcus giving Titus the opportunity to declare himself emperor. We get the same scene in Act 5, and it's Marcus declaring Lucius Rome's royal emperor. So, like, what is virtue really here? It's a kind of ability to orient oneself in a world of conflicting and competing forces. That's Rome. In some ways, it's like the ground zero for this idea of power in Shakespeare's plays. It feels to me like a true Elizabethan meditation on Machiavelli. It is a work that like stands as just such a realist account of power and one that doesn't shy away from how this feels, which is just devastating for everybody in this world. Some readers might interpret Lucius's ascent to power as a positive, righteous shift, similar to how one might read the resolution of Macbeth. The villainous Macbeth murders the good King Duncan, but Duncan's son defeats Macbeth and reclaims the throne. Here, the villainous Saturninus and Tamora conspire against the good Titus, but Titus's son defeats Saturninus and claims the empire. But Shakespeare signals that the play's ending is not a happy one, in language that his humanist-educated audience was trained to understand, the language of classical texts. This is like a formal conversation within a history of tragedy. This is a moment where people are paying much more attention to antique tragedies. This is a generation for whom many works of Greek tragedy are new and exciting. It felt rediscovered. And even Roman tragedy, there are important translations of, of Seneca. And increasingly, there's a, a working knowledge of Euripides and Sophocles. Now, I say all this because like, <laughs> you don't have to know much about tragedy in antiquity to know one thing you should do to bodies is bury them and don't feed people their children. Okay. And then in the denouement of this play, it's as if Shakespeare walks us through the horrors of antique tragedy and offers these plot points as if they belong to this late antique world. The crises in Sophocles' Antigone stems from the king forbidding Antigone to bury her dead brother. In Seneca's Thyestes, a king takes revenge on his treacherous brother by murdering his brother's children and serving them to him at a feast, an act that represents cosmic chaos for the chorus within the play. Audiences would have recognised echoes of these stories in Titus Andronicus. Feeding Chiron and Demetrius to their mother, and then leaving the bodies of Tamara and Aaron unburied. 
it's as if we, we're not we're supposed to see that, oh yes, this is just what happens in this ancient world. These practices pass for best, I suppose, among Lucius and the gods. Shakespeare, he's walking us through and saying, these audiences really don't understand their own tragedy. And these practices give us a real sense of what's going to happen in some fictive act six of Titus Andronicus. Like, none of this ends well. There isn't a restored Roman virtue at the end of this play because there wasn't any real Roman virtue to begin with other than a sense of virtue as strength or force or political efficacy. As if, like, in a history of tragedy, Shakespeare is kind of waving his arms and yelling at us, none of this ends well. These are depravities in the tragedy of antiquity that we see reproduced here. And we just don't see the consequences played out. Shakespeare's play is a devastating critique of the Rome it depicts. And it's all the more devastating because it isn't aimed only at Rome. It also targets the foundational practices of Shakespeare's own culture. If audiences can recognise that Titus ends on a warning note, it's only because they are immersed in the same literary classical world that structures this play. Titus also retells three well-known classical stories of women who suffer violence, Philomel, Virginius's daughter Virginia, and Lucrece. Lucrece was a Roman noblewoman who was raped by Tarquin, son of the tyrannical Roman king, and who then committed suicide. Titus and Marcus both compare Lavinia to Lucrece after her assault. Aaron, too, compares the chaste Lavinia to Lucrece while he is plotting her rape. Humanism taught students to take classical figures as models for action, but when people in this play take classical texts as their models, they use them as the basis for rape and murder. Chiron and Demetrius repeat the Ovidian myth of Philomel and Tereus, raping Lavinia and cutting off her tongue and hands. Then, Titus repeats the Latin story of Virginius and Virginia, killing his daughter in response to the shame of rape. Even Lucius's ascent to power echoes the Lucrece story. Roman leaders took Lucrece's rape and death as the occasion to expel the Tarquins and establish Rome as a republic. One of those leaders who took power in the new government was named Lucius Junius Brutus. Lavinia's brother Lucius too mobilises Lavinia's assault into an ascent to political power. Scholar Stephanie Jed has described how the cost of political progress in Rome is often the rape and death of women, Lucrece, Lavinia. The, the fact that we understand Lavinia's assault as a repetition should disturb us. It points to a kind of structural misogyny and violence against women. It draws us back to Lucrece, or even then the murder of Lavinia. We have no idea whether she is aware of what's about to happen to her or whether Titus has surprised her by once again invoking classical literature. If this is the vision of the ancient world and Shakespeare is giving us 
textual evidence that becomes remarkably difficult to idealize it. Even when they read figures that are supposed to stand in for the glory of antiquity, they only read them and quote them insofar as these sources bear witness to cruelty and injustice. That's it. Like, this is the view of late antiquity we get. There's no idealistic Rome. After learning that Chiron and Demetrius were Lavinia's attackers, Titus sends them a gift of weapons wrapped with a classical Latin text. Chiron says airily, Oh, tis a verse in Horace. I know it well. I read it in the grammar long ago. Many in Shakespeare's audience, too, would have read at school the authors mentioned in this play. There's a veiled threat in the verse Titus has sent, but Chiron, with his long-worn familiarity with this famous classical poet, cannot recognise its further meaning. Shakespeare asks if the same is true for the spectators. Have they also grown too familiar with classical, respectable texts to perceive the full import of what they are reading? If the answer is yes, Shakespeare's play works to shock readers out of that easy familiarity by dramatising in full, explicit detail the actions that these texts depict. This is where the play's graphic violence and dark humour come in. The play mutilates its characters and then goes on to joke and pun about the mutilations. After Lavinia is raped and her hands and tongue are cut off, Titus urges her to consider suicide. Marcus says, Teach her not thus to lay such violent hands upon her tender life. Titus replies, What violent hands can she lay on her life? Oh, handle not the theme to talk of hands. The violence becomes almost parodic in the final scene when three murders flash by in three lines. These shocking elements can seem like gross violations of artistic decorum, or just gross. But for Professor Leo, they're part of the play's project of waking its audience up, making real the violence that humanist readers might too casually accept as part of classical tradition, and asking what we do with such violence. Thinking about the, the violence and the aspects of humor or irony in the play, I actually see it, these as artistic successes. It's a play where the consequences of violence are depicted and you're forced to sit with those consequences. I think that's crucial to the, the ethics that Shakespeare is developing in this play that we have to sit with and watch and consider the consequences of violence. I understand the people who are like, this is not for me, but the claim that this is not Shakespeare or that somehow like this is unworthy of the other plays. I mean, this is a remarkably different project, but it's deliberate. I do think this is Shakespeare at one level telling us like, Yes, of course, classical literature is a rich resource, but also let's think about what's depicted there. How do we think with this? Renaissance humanist culture was built on a foundation of classical texts. Titus refers repeatedly and deliberately to those texts to ask what problems face a society built on such a foundation. 
But the play also represents a more positive way of relating to texts. Some of the characters are themselves grieved and shocked by the play's violence. And, in their grief, one thing they do is quote. When Marcus sees Lavinia after her assault, his speech is full of classical allusions. When Lavinia names her attackers, Titus quotes Seneca and petitions the gods with a line from Ovid. Shakespeare, by using quotes and allusions, often in Latin, from classical texts, really dissolves hard distinctions between art and life. When Titus says, like, terras Austria reliquit, when he says, like, more or less, justice has left the earth, quoting Ovid, these are quotations that testify to some shared experience that traverses art and life. And these quotes have, like, concrete meaning to the characters. And to quote is really to think dynamically about one's own experience. Why quote at these moments? Like, what meaning can these works of Latin literature have? And I think it's, it's important to recognize that these are moments where the figures themselves, like Marcus, Titus, they are saying over and over how difficult it is to speak in the face of such sorrow. Like, what new language do you find to talk about these new horrors? And I think it's telling in this play that they often turn to these quotations in Latin. And I actually think Shakespeare is thinking here about what tragedy itself is supposed to do. I mean, part of it is like, what's the point of this? Just to see horror and suffering dramatized. Like, is it to give voice to that? Is it to help its audiences feel these things? And in this sense, it's a comment on the project of tragedy here. It's Marcus and Titus saying, I'm searching for a language to describe what I'm feeling. These words by other authors can help me, if not realize and express perfectly what I'm experiencing. They nonetheless help me approximate it. And they help me communicate it to others. And I think that's also what these citations do. They're efforts at communication. And, and in that sense, it's about distributing the suffering. The distribution and the expression of suffering is really so integral to the project of tragedy. And that's what they're trying to find in these moments. Not just how do you communicate this suffering, but how can we do that together? Through their classical allusions, characters in the tragedy enact one of the purposes of tragedy, to give expression to suffering and share that expression with a community. Of course, all of Shakespeare's tragedies could contribute to this purpose, including ones less viscerally violent than Titus. But Titus goes one step further than these other plays. It acknowledges this potentially ennobling purpose for tragedy, but it also asks whether that's your purpose. Are you watching this tragedy to expand your empathetic identification with the suffering of others? Or did you come to enjoy some shocking entertainment? 
As becomes clear in live performance, Titus is full of embarrassingly irresistible humour. You might grieve for Titus when he has sent the heads of his two sons and his own severed hand. But when it's time to clear the stage of all these body parts and Titus says to Marcus, Come, brother, take a head. Most audiences can't suppress a laugh. Likewise, you might find yourself laughing at a clown who carries a message for Titus a split second before the clown is killed. This dynamic of the play, its jarring juxtaposition of horror and farce, the way it can entertain you in spite of yourself, forces us to acknowledge our complicity with tragedy. This horrific story is being played for your satisfaction. What kind of satisfaction do you get from watching Assault and Revenge? Why do you want to see violent justice executed when you're not the one who's suffered? Are you here for the justice or are you here for the suffering? The complicity point is so crucial. It is a play that asks you, what do you want from your tragedy? What satisfaction do we get from watching Revenge? Like, what kind of identification does that involve? And it's an easy identification if it's saying, like, I can want Titus to get revenge, although I have felt none of the suffering of the Andronicae. Like, if we take seriously that tragedy is about distributing suffering, we're only getting half of that, usually. Um, we're only getting the satisfaction part. Some critics have said the play could only have been written for those sorts of audiences, the ones who want crass, unthinking, blood-and-guts entertainment. Some have even read the play as a parody, a joke played on the audience, as Shakespeare watched them, to quote critic John Dover Wilson, gaping ever wider to swallow more as he tossed them bigger and bigger gobbets of sob-stuff and raw beefsteak. But Professor Leo thinks this play has a more serious project. Sometimes things that might seem incoherent, they challenge us to see this play as a whole or a project in, in ways that we don't usually assume a project takes shape. Are these indecorous points meant to kind of please an unthinking audience or are they meant to challenge that early modern audience? Like, I find that very exciting that Shakespeare is, and, and the whole company here, they're not just working to please an audience at any costs, pandering to them, but also making moves and introducing language that challenges those audiences to think. And so Titus Andronicus, for me, is an invitation to think about a, a history of audiences. Like, what do any of us want from our theater? In our next episode, we'll return to these questions of audience and illusion in three key scenes that reveal the ways in which reading and interpretation in this play are both sources of meaning and sources of violence. Mm -hmm.